Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. It's my great pleasure to welcome our colleague and friend, Rabbi David Saperstein. For decades, Rabbi David Saperstein directed the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, representing the Reform Jewish Movement to Congress and the administration. He now serves as the full-time director emeritus. Through January of 2017, Rabbi Saperstein served our nation as the United States Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom under President Barack Obama, carrying out his responsibilities as the country's chief diplomat on religious freedom issues. He currently also serves as a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Foreign Service School and its Berkeley Center on Religion, Peace, and Foreign Policy. Well, I am delighted to have the opportunity to talk with you and to talk to those who will listen to it. The first question I want to ask you is about the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act, <laughs> which uh, you were part of uh, lobbying for and helping make real. The first thing that comes to mind to me as an American is why we in the United States needed restoration of religious freedom? Because in 1990, the United States Supreme Court faced with a case of whether or not two Native Americans who used peyote in their religious observances and ritual lives were entitled to keep that job and, if fired, to get benefits from the state for in their jobs as drug counselors. The Supreme Court, in one of the more extraordinary decisions in the history of the court, without either side making the argument and without a single question being asked by the court, the United States uh, Supreme Court took the normal test for protecting all First Amendment rights, that none of those rights are, are absolute, They all can be restricted by a compelling government interest, which the court has defined as an interest of the government of the utmost importance, that is applied in whatever manner least restricts on the right that's involved. It can limit press, but in whatever way it least restricts press. It can limit right of association or protest, uh, but in whatever way least restricts it, and so too with religious freedom. And without anyone asking, without a single question, they simply took that test and threw it in the garbage, saying it was a luxury we can no longer afford, um, and said that from now on all the government needed was a rational interest and a, a facially neutral law that applied not just to religion, couldn't single out religion for restrictions, but if it was a restriction that applied to everyone, then all the government knew was a rational basis. So we went legislatively in a wall-to-wall coalition um, uh, from Reform Jews to Agudas Israel, from the religious right. right to the religious left, from the ACLU to right-wing um, Jews, um, uh, groups yeah, uh, in, in this uh, remarkable coalition to restore the traditional test, saying you can only restrict religion when the government had a compelling interest and applied it as narrowly as possible. As, narrow, as least infringing as possible. Mm-hmm. And this was under Bush. The case had taken place in 1990 under Bush. The law was finally passed by the time that President Clinton had taken office. And do we know what uh, motivated the court to spontaneously pursue such a reverse line? It was was, uh, just the Scalia's analysis 
of, uh, of the case that uh, prevailed. And it's interesting because he's a very religious person himself. It took everyone by surprise um, that he would uh, do that. But it, it seems there were some other decisions he had that hinted that in First Amendment rights in general, he wanted to have a somewhat lower bar um, in terms of uh, what the government would be permitted to do um, in, in areas that might infringe on other First Amendment rights. But on this one, he prevailed. And uh, there are a number of different reasons that motivated different judges. John Paul Stevens had an equal protection argument. You shouldn't treat religion differently from anything else. And uh, so th there were a range of different uh, motivations that led to justice, but it took everybody by surprise. So there was also a little bit of coincidence of, of, of people with different interests on the court happening to land Indeed. on the same side of the majority. Indeed. All right. And, and, and with respect to Scalia, are, are you of the camp that views his claimed, his stated philosophy of constitutional rigor and kind of literalism or fundamentalism, are you of the camp that views that as a, a farce or a fallacy or, or an... Or an my understanding is that most people don't attribute to him cynicism, but they do attribute to him a, a terrible blind spot. In every, in every legal system, including Jewish law, you will find people who are strict constructionists and people who give much greater leeway to the right of scholars of later generations to interpret the law. Look at the divisions that became normative in Jewish law between, uh, with a biblical law, always interpreting strictly, and in rabbinic-created law, believing that the rabbis, future rabbis, um, had much more leeway to interpret the law. In the debate in the Talmud, of whether or not you could look to the reason of the law between Rabbi Judah and Rabbi Shimon in Baba Metzia, where they argue, you know, can you look to the reason of the law? And if the reason of the law doesn't make sense, you have a right to change the law. Or because the law is written, you have to take it literally. Justice Scalia was of that camp, of Rabbi Judah, um, who said, no, it says what it says, the law, and you interpret it based on only what it says, not on what you think the purpose of the law was, not in light of changing circumstances. You apply the law as literally as possible. We can't get into the minds of the person who wrote the law, the committee that passed the law, the whole Congress who may have had a wide range of reasons. Therefore, all the court can really treat is the literal uh, meaning of the law. But of course, every law, including the Constitution, is a dynamic document that has to adjust to changing, um, uh, to changing circumstances, to changing understandings of how a rule written in the 1700s needs to be applied in the 20th uh, century. If you just take it literally, you could somewhat trap. So there's a, a huge debate on that. Scalia was one pole of that debate. In general, um, most of the Jewish justices who have sat on the Supreme Court took a very different view of this issue. Um, and that was really what was at stake with Scalia. Of course, one can argue in Bush v. Gore that that was not a literal um, uh, looking at the, uh, at the uh, uh, case. What I loved about Scalia was... He was not just one of the most brilliant justices, but he was far and away one of the most entertaining. He had a great yeah. sense of humor, so, yeah. um, uh, and he would, he would say things nobody else would think about saying. He wrote every decision 
as though it were his last. <laughs> and he simply wanted to get off his chest everything he felt about the decisions <laughs> of his other justices or he felt about the, right, right. Um, the issue. And in private conversations, um, uh, a couple of times when we chatted and I would ask him questions, he answered questions about what might happen and that, that no other justice on the court would, uh, with, uh, would answer. Uh, with sort of <laughs> Churchillian wit as well. Yes, right? indeed. indeed. Now, but, but is it not the case that uh, the case you cited that precipitated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 might be an argument not against Scalia's uh, constructivism, but against the legitimacy of uh, the, the, the logic, the very, the very underpinnings of that claim in the first place? Meaning, it's not that uh, uh, those of the living constitution disagree with those of the constructivist camp. It's that those of the living constitution side don't think the constructivist camp is even really an argument. We, 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 as you yourself said, we, we meaning I'm, I'm on the living constitution side, we're not saying we disagree with you. We're saying your argument is, is fallacious. There is no such thing as yeah, but, but, you know, as supporters of the First Amendment, I defend his right to be wrong. Uh, fair uh, enough, yeah, but, so, but, but if Scalia were such a constructivist, would he not have come out on a different side of that argument? Uh, you know, one can say that if you wanted to be totally take the the First Amendment literally, and um, you know, Congress shall make no law infringing on the free exercise of uh, religion thereof. In what way was? Uh, in allowing infringement on religious freedom, uh, not violating the literal construction of the uh, of the law, and that was an argument that I made uh, uh, with him at a dinner. A few of us were at once about it. He had his response to it, but uh, that's why I think you don't want to get trapped in the literal uh, question because it, it takes you down a lot of dead ends. Oh, and, right. Okay. Fair enough. Switching gears, the Religious Action Committee of Reform Judaism has a long history of partnership with civil rights. Yeah, you want to say something? Yeah, let, let me just say one other thing, yeah, because that law that you've asked about, yeah. today is one of the most contentious right, it's laws. And, and, and it's being revived for the other side, right? Here, and it, it's contentious because at the time it was written, we didn't anticipate except for a hand, small group of, of scholars who were writing at that time, but the majority of scholars, the majority of justices on the court, the people who were part of the coalition, that was left-right coalition that wrote the law, didn't anticipate that people would use it as a religious justification to discriminate right. against other people. Such and as we're finding now. And today we have this intense debate right. in American life. And this is a case where um, some people say, well, we ought to change the law now and say that they can't be used to discriminate. In point of fact, we, the civil rights uh, proponents, lose very few of these cases. We win almost always the courts deciding that protection of African Americans right, or right. religious minorities or ethnic minorities or in states that have protections for the LGBTQ community. That is a compelling interest of the court. And if you allow a religious objection, it will simply swallow the rule because then anyone who wants to discriminate will say, I have a religious well, but, um, objection. But that's the case that's before the Supreme Court right now. This last week goes in right, the Supreme right. Court before coming to Biennial to listen to the arguments. Um, the Masterpiece Cake uh, case, in other words, does the baker have a right? Does the baker have a right, right to, to discriminate? Um, uh, simply saying, I don't believe uh -huh. in gay marriage so because it violates gonna... my religious objections. And we're going to find out a lot more about the future of 
of the protection of fundamental civil rights in the country based on the decision in this the, case. The, the primary difference being it's one thing to talk about the infringement of religious rights from the state to an individual. It's another thing to talk about the infringement of, the, of those rights or just the act of discrimination from one individual to another. So it seems like there's a different axis of power and a different axis of defense. It's a very good way of, of explaining it, that, that these laws, the First Amendment laws, are protections or laws modeling the First Amendment are protections against the state. It limits the state. Right, right. Here you have not the state acting against people with victims of discrimination, but the uh, individuals exercising uh, their right. right. But every time someone exercises free uh, speech rights, it can create harms against uh, other people. Uh, you know, right. with but that would be a bad analogy if you want to protect so, the LGBT um, community in this case, because we've we've long defended the rights of neo Nazis or whatever. To, to well, to even speak. that is under uh, under attack now on many university um, campuses. A debate right, about creating right, right. safe zones um, and that legitimizing the limitation I on free exercise. I, I still remain. On all of these cases, both in the freedom of religion and free speech, that in the end we will be a safer country and a stronger country if we continue to protect these fundamental First Amendment civil liberties uh, rights, and we can do it in a way that will, in the end, protect the minorities who are often victimized but, by but, but when, hate speech. When or, you personally refer to your own position as protecting these rights, do you mean that you protect the rights of the bakers not to serve the gay marriage? No, I think this is a case where the compelling interests of the government to provide uh, civil rights protections uh, in Colorado. Just as they can't serve, they can't refuse to serve a black. That's right. If you say you can't do this, you can put up a sign saying, if you're, I don't believe Jewish weddings, I don't believe interreligious weddings, I don't believe miscegenation weddings are legitimate and God doesn't want them and violates my right, religion. Right, right. So you do what you want, but I'm not going to be gives, giving my stamp of approval to that. It, allowing a religious exemption when someone chooses to go into public commerce and participate in the right. economy of the society, yeah. you'll do that. I mean, that's what the civil rights battles were in public accommodations I, I um, in the 1960s, and it remains as true today. So I think it does, Trump. But you know, the response would be from people: Wait a minute, if you're a Jew, if you're an LGBT baker, right. and they and Westboro Church. Who spews this hatred Vile, towards uh, uh, yeah, exactly it's vitriol? Um, here you said, to, we want we want a cake with our message. We, we want a cake um, with uh, of it, on and top you, of you know, it, should yeah. they be compelled um, right. uh, to do it? Or and the answer you know, must be and, certainly yes by your logic. And, uh, I believe just that as the compelling we did, just as we defended the neo Nazis to march in, in Skokie. Exactly, exactly. And as I said, those ideas are somewhat under pressure today from the left on free speech. By the way, but Leganai, not to our benefit. It, I think. I mean, I think that. Well, take you know, hate speech, hate speech provisions that are much more robust um, in, in Europe. Europe than they yeah. are in, in in America, where you can't get out and publicly talk right, about right, Holocaust right. denial. You can't talk in anti-Semitic right. terms. Who's better? Who's worse in this? I think our structure certainly works for America and the diversity of America. Right. But it is a fascinating moment in history where we see what happens when good moral principles are in tension with each other That's right. and somehow compromises have to be made and where you draw the line right. where your bar is the essential is and, thing. And, and, and each uh, democracy yeah. finds right. its, its, uh, its, its bar. Okay, we spoke about public accommodations and the great symbolic moments of the civil rights movement, uh, the lunch counters, etc. And much to our pride here in the Reform Movement, the Religious Action Committee of Reform Judaism has long, has a long history of partnership with the Civil Rights Movement. 
In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the RAC has always quite proudly pointed out that the Voting Rights Act of uh, 1964, Five. Four, 1965, Five. thank you. And, and the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 were both drafted and drafted in, 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 in the in, conference in room the, of right. the Religious Action so, Center. Yes. So that's a symbolic point that we, we we're, we're proud to point out, but there's obviously much more behind that too, again, I think to our shared credit. Nevertheless, I want to ask you if you if you would agree, and if so, or elaborate on the dynamics of what appears to be a fraying of the communal relationship between the great black African American institutions in American life and the the the, the body politic of the Jewish people in America. Uh, would you agree that uh, that, that I, I wouldn't? The media has always been obsessed every time there are tensions between the black and the Jewish community. When there are tensions between the Asian in the community and the African American community, right, it doesn't right. make the front pages of the paper unless something right. Unless it's the LA riots right. uh, <laughs> uh, here. If if uh, there are tensions between uh, the Puerto Rican community and uh, the African American yeah, or the, the Mexican American, you know, like, yeah. it's just it's reported on as kind of ongoing story. When it happens with blacks and Jews over Farrakhan, Crown Heights, a whole range are differences over uh, quotas, affirmative action issues. The press, you know, galvanizes uh, this or uh, Reverend Jackson's Jaime Town uh, yeah, right, right. Uh, comment. Here it makes the front pages of, uh, of the paper and it creates a filter through which we see it. But if you look over the sweep of our history, not only have Jews always been disproportionately compared to other segments of the white community, supportive of the civil rights agenda, supportive of uh, African-American political uh, candidates compared to other uh, non-African-American communities. The same is true in the other direction. In, in other words, if you look at our attitudes and beliefs, we are very closely aligned with each other in the in the political spectrum. The Jewish community remains one of the most politically liberal communities of America on some issues, the social issues, even more liberal Taxation. than the African than the African American yeah. community right, right, right. on the social right. issues. Right, right, right. right. Um, uh, we we vote overwhelmingly for Democratic um, in uh, common, candidates right, yeah. in national elections. Um, we support each other's uh, candidates. Um, the Black Caucus in, uh, uh, Congress. In, uh, in Congress has overwhelmingly been active leaders in the Soviet Jewry movement, in the pro-Israel movement. Um, the Jewish Caucus was strongly supportive, not just of civil rights, um, but in the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement, Howard Wolpe and Steve Solar is playing key roles in those, um, uh, in those battles. We have been aligned from the very beginning. In communities across America, black and Jewish uh, coalitions, or blacks and Jews as part of broader civic coalitions, have played in all these decades of the 20th century into the 21st, key roles in addressing many of the social uh, injustices in their local communities. I think right now, you've actually seen a resurgence of this because we've been reminded in the most vivid terms by Charlottesville, by the rise yeah, of the alt-right, by the rise of white supremacists and we share interests with the black community. Um, uh, here, that if either of us can be discriminated against the targets right, right, of right. hate, we are both endangered and our country is endangered and we have a more compelling 
compelling interest than ever uh, to be working together to thwart the efforts of the far right to tear America asunder. And uh, I'm proud of that, that relationship. As am I. I'm, I'm glad to hear your optimistic assessment of our relationship as communities. And then I, I need you to share some love with me. Give me a sense of the uh, midterms coming up. What, what, do you, what do you sense? We're at an extraordinary moment unlike almost any moment we've ever had in American politics before. Um, Donald Trump is a, a, a political figure, almost unique. We've had populists in American history from, you know, Huey Long to... Andrew uh, Jackson, uh, apparently. Yeah, Andrew <laughs> Jackson. Uh, he is different in the following sense. If you look from the end of World War II until the end of the 20th century, into the mid-90s, and you look at the ADL polling data on the numbers of people who hold racist attitudes or anti-Semitic attitudes in America. With almost not a glitch in the graph, there was a line going downhill with a shrinking number of people holding these attitudes. But, and then it flattened out in the mid-90s because it corresponded with educational levels. As the public educational system in the 20th century was working, educational levels improved and more people went to university, the number of people holding racist, anti-Semitic attitudes fell. But even with those improvements, we know today from the ADL polls about 14% or 40 million people in the country do hold anti-Semitic attitudes. The, what emerged after World War II were these powerful cultural constraints that said, you can't talk about those things openly. It became impolite. You can't become a figure in civil society, in cultural society, in political society, and give expression to, the, uh, to those uh, right. prejudicial attitudes um, that you have. President Trump has opened a Pandora's box. Right, right. He has koshered the yeah. use of some of the most vile vitriol against different groups, and he's made an enormous the political discourse. And it has opened a Pandora's box that we see now, hate speech, combined with his impact with what had been mounting over the last decade of the anonymity of social media and the vile hate speech we've seen right. there because of the anonymity yeah, and the widespread about it. And two things right. coming together now have changed things in a very alarming way. And uh, he clearly is content to play to his base um, with the hope that the other side will make mistakes and it will allow him right, to right. Uh, continue uh, his uh, legislative achievements and his political um, achievements. So there's no telling what's going to happen in the next elections. And I think the widespread disapproval holds open the, possi the possibility that there will be a real repudiation of it. But I would ask this question to, uh, to any of the Democratic listeners that you have. If they're one of the central lessons of the last election were that there, we've identified millions of people, blue-collar workers in this right. country. Who feel disenfranchised. Who feel, exactly, disenfranchised, left out of, uh, of the technological uh, revolution, left behind by globalization, who don't believe for a minute they're at the age of 50 or 55 going right, to get right. retrained into a new technology job um, that will pay them the same kind of salary and benefits um, that they enjoyed in the manufacturing sector, for example, who believe that their children will be worse off than right, they right, will right, be. Right. Um, and these people filled with kind of frustration and despair uh, that he was able to capture. Where is the message about to those people about how th their needs are going to be addressed that we're hearing from either part right well, now? His sense of, I want to make America great, was a message, I want to go back to something that was. The other fundamental change um, that we are seeing is in 2008, 54% 
of the population were white Christians. It has shrunk enormously. Sure. Between 2008, 54%, to 2017, nine years later, it has fallen to 43%. Three quarters of the Republican Party, white Christians. 29% of the Democratic Party, white Christians. And those who identify as Republicans think it is a white Christian heritage, according to the polls, that has helped make America great. Over two-thirds of Democrats say it is primarily or it is significantly um, the diversity of America right. that has made America opposite two messages. widely different views. We have so much in play right now on the economic front, on the cultural changes, and this idea that we can go back to a fabled time. Right, right, right. Um, we're never going back to that time, and no one knows what the political implications of that are going to be. So anyone who predicts what's going to happen <laughs> um, here at Tibet, right. I wouldn't take Okay, it. so it's, a, pred it's yeah. a prediction not to predict. <laughs> Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. So I want to ask you a rabbinical question. You are a reform rabbi and a vocal liberal, uh, even though uh, the rack is uh, not partisan. I want to ask you, uh, from a rabbinical perspective, what issue among the many issues that you've undertaken personally, professionally, has put liberalism at odds with the Jewish tradition in its mainstream and, or main historical stream, depending how you define that, and therefore forced you, by your own lights, as you see it, to have effectively favored the innovative spirit of modernity over our inheritance as, uh, as Jews of an ancient uh, uh, and venerable tradition come clean on a navigation you've had to make rather than simply casting something conveniently liberal as uh, evocative of Jewish values. Come clean on a conflict. If you look at the social and economic fabric woven into rabbinic Judaism, it was in many regards the first social welfare uh, system in history of the world. In other words, every community that grew to a certain size had to have five basic social welfare institutions, a money fund, a clothing fund, a burial fund, um, a school that uh, every boy, uh, right. rich and poor, was entitled to and, uh, and a fund for poor brides um, as well. Uh, here, fun, and, well by the, and then by the early Middle Ages, it had grown into a veritable bureaucracy. bureaucracy. Right, right. Uh, so bridal funds for, you know, dowry funds right, for dowry. poor brides, but old age homes in, in right. Uh, in some uh, communities, actual public health systems in the Spanish um, right, right. Uh, golden age. of um, uh, here, Exactly. So you found in, there Social was welfare significant funds, yeah. government regulation of the economy, protection of the environment. It was paid for by both tzedakah 
And if you didn't pay tzedakah, the Beit Din could actually enforce it. That's right. But there were always supplementary taxation systems um, as well. So these were run by the, uh, the self-governing Jewish community, implemented uh, by the uh, community, etc. On the other hand, if you look at the Jewish tradition, this liberal idea of, of uh, moral relativism, what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me, really doesn't exist. There is an absolute right and wrong on many of what we would call the social issues today. The tradition accords much more with moderate, uh, central, uh, center-right, center-center-right yeah. right, right, right. Uh, people. You know, on the other hand, you know, that we made the death penalty very hard yes, um, yeah. here, but we never eliminated it formally. The Jewish tradition no, the never Jewish eliminated fine. it. Uh, yes, and it always theory. existed yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, here. So, you know, there are, there are pieces of, of the tradition that clearly resonate deeply with core principle of conservative politics uh, uh, today. You know, there was clearly a free enterprise system in, yes. in the way the yeah, Jewish right, tradition right, work right. was regulated, but it was clearly a free enterprise system in private ownership, um, right. etc. So um, you have a mix in this. So you asked for where are there uh, where are there conflicts, both from the tradition and from the lessons of Jewish history. I'll give you a couple. Abortion. Our movement. I personally have a bedrock principle that Roe v. Wade is what is right, and that. Ultimately, a woman is a moral decision maker in her own right who has a right to determine what to do with her body. In the Jewish tradition, it would be hard to find Roe v. Wade. You could set it in the for sure. You could set it in the moral principles of of uh, uh, the fundamental dignity of all people, freedom of choice, all of those things that resonate with. But as the rabbis applied those to abortion, you have a wide range of views. There are liberal decisors, there are conservative decisors. If there is any guidance that you know guidance relevant to today, it's that of all forms of birth control. It is the most morally problematic, and therefore should be avoided right. um, where possible. So when when the Clintons used to say that in America um, abortion should be legal, safe, and rare, um, uh-huh. and that's the goal, we should all work on together. We often pay lip service to that, but we're so protective of Roe v. Wade, we think that's the end of the debate. But knowing the plight of unintended pregnancies and of the uh, young women who often find themselves with un- in the terrible moral dilemmas that that in functional dilemmas, I think joining with the right to say, what can we do with those who believe in birth control? What can we do to minimize right. this? Now, that may leave out some of the, uh, the anti-birth control um, uh, 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 groups. But where those, you know, what can we do to, to ensure that women have access to birth control? What can we do to ensure that if a woman becomes pregnant, she has actual real choices? I think we have an obligation to do everything possible to empower young women and women of any age to have access to birth control and that will help mitigate the number of abortions in this uh, country. So a little nuance of uh, something that's different. Fair enough. Or, Fair the, enough. You know, or the lesson from our history about what it means to be a persecuted people. I don't think the Jewish community in general has taken the, uh, seriously enough um, the battle on behalf of persecuted religious um, groups all across the globe. Thinks what we're speaking of what's happening with the Rohingya now. Victims of ethnic cleansing are the most brutal kind in my last... Uh, in, in Burma. In, in, in Burma and being forced now two-thirds to of the 1.2 yeah. uh, million uh, Rohingya to the southern areas of uh, Bangladesh. In my last trip 
uh, as the United States ambassador for uh, international religious freedom, was to visit those Rohingya refugees. And uh, I met with some of these people, I cannot tell you, the painful experience of listening to the horrific stories of what happened. A woman with two girls sitting next to her describing what it was like when she had a gun pointed at her and her two daughters were raped oh. um, in front of her eyes. The the religious leaders, they had not called imams, but Molavis, um who uh, were beaten and brutalized and uh, saw their one room. Uh, they don't have real mosques, these small villages, but they uh, um, uh, their, uh, their uh, uh, areas that they use for worship um, all destroyed and their Korans and other holy books put into bonfires um, and burnt in front of the people in the village before they were forced to leave. I mean, th these were horrific stories. We Jews have a role to play. So we talked about earlier the pride we have in the 30 years the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights was in the Religious Action Center building in all of the great battles for civil rights from 1961 until 1991 were organized out of the Religious Center conference room um, where black and Jewish lawyers and activists sat together, but a broader coalition of decency, uh, I mean, enormous pride for us. I'm equally proud of what happened in the late 90s when we reached out to the religious right groups, the Catholic bishops. We sat down and we passed a whole bunch, wrote and got introduced and passed a whole bunch of laws. Uh, the International Religious Freedom Act, the first human trafficking bill, anti-human trafficking bill that led to the opening of an office at the State Department and the requirement of the annual report in that area and put far more resources into helping the victims of uh, human trafficking, not just in the United States, but all across the globe. The Sudan Peace Act that uh, helped bring, uh, played a pivotal role in bringing to an end the worst civil war in the world at that time. It reached for 17 years, this is before Darfur, with the world hardly paying any attention at all, and yet more people were killed and displaced than Bosnia, Kosovo, and Rwanda combined. We really helped this coalition help bring it to an end. I'm proud of the role that we played, um, but in the main, the Jewish community has not been engaged in these battles against uh, for the problems of Christians who are persecuted, and uh, and I think uh, and other Muslim groups that are persecuted, like the Rohingya um, and others. So uh, you know that. That's an area where it changed knowing the lessons of our tradition and saying we have been the quintessential victims of religious persecution who condemned the conscience of the world time and again for standing silently by in the face of our great tragedies um, culminating in the Holocaust um, uh, here. How can we stand by when others are being victimized in similar kinds of ways across the globe? The lessons of our history compel us, should compel us um, uh, to be involved and I'm very proud of the role the reform movement um, played in it, but there aren't too many other uh, Jewish organizations that are involved in these fights. All the more important that the Religious Action Center and the Reform Movement should be working so hard for these goals. So I want to thank you for your work and for taking the time for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to well, you. I, I, I'm really delighted to have this, and just indulge me just a minute more to say that I have an extraordinary pride in the close relationship between the Hebrew Union College and the Religious Action Center. Um, the interaction between the two has been significant, both in, in courses that we have work with uh, together, programs that Interns. we work with. There are about 120 reform rabbis in the country who have been 
interns or legislative assistants, Yazidrath at the, at the center, et cetera. So I'm immensely proud of that piece of it. And Rabbi Pesner, this extraordinary head of the Religious Your successor, Action Center, yeah, yeah. my successor has just been breaking new ground in galvanizing ways for rabbis um, and uh, as well as lay leaders in the, in the country get involved at state and local levels um, as well as at the national uh, uh, level there. So it's a partnership that we greatly cherish at the Religious Action Center, making this podcast especially a uh, sweet for me. Uh, likewise, the feeling is entirely mutual, and uh, here's to our shared work in the future then. Thank you Look so much. Look forward to it. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.